Hey guys, you're listening to episode 51 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with Pekeli Shanko, Vice President for Global Church Movements at CRU and the President of GACX, the Global Alliance for Church Multiplication. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. In this episode, we're talking with Bekele Shanko, Vice President for Global Church Movements at CRU and the President of GACX, the Global Alliance for Church Multiplication. Bekele's life started out in a small Ethiopian village without a school, clinic, or running water. And since coming to Christ in a truly miraculous manner at a young age, God has produced an explosive amount of fruit from his life. He has an incredible global perspective of how God is reaching the rest of the world with the gospel and what it will take to finish the job, and I'd best let him tell you the rest himself. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have a growing community groups on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Bekele. We're really excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Could you get us started just telling us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, your faith background? Yeah, it's a long story, but I will try to summarize my upbringing, my story. I was born and raised in Ethiopia. I was born in a rural village in Ethiopia, in the village didn't have a Christian, didn't have a church, didn't have a school, didn't have a health facility, no clinic, no running water. It was a very poor village in South Central Ethiopia. And we didn't have a church. That means we were not introduced to Jesus. We didn't know Christ. So we were animists. That means that we practiced the spirit world. So people worshipped anything like trees and rocks and river and witch doctors and all kinds of things as objects that had power to answer their questions and give hope. My father was serving a powerful witch doctor in our community, and the witch doctor was related to us. He was like my dad's uncle, and the witch doctor had power from the spirits. He was able to bring rain and stop rain. And when he was not happy with people, he cursed people and people died instantly. Many people in the West, they find it difficult to understand, but that is what life is like in a culture, in a place where people didn't know God and the spirits controlled the lives of people. So my father was serving this man who was feared. And my father also had power from the spirits. People feared him when he cursed people. People were sick and all kinds of things. But the witch doctor had given so many instructions to my father, which my father could not keep. For example, my father was required to wake up every morning at five o'clock and drink alcohol nonstop and smoke nonstop. My father had three wives and he would beat up his wives. And when food was prepared in our home, we were not allowed to eat. 
my father would take the first portion of the meal and would sacrifice or give us a sacrifice to the spirits, to demons. Just outside our home, behind our house, there was a big coffee tree that was dedicated for that practice. And my father would put that food outside and wait. He comes home and wait for the food to disappear. He would go out and check if the food had disappeared. That means his God was happy with him and we had permission to eat food. Otherwise, my father would kill a chicken or goat or a lamb just to please his God. So that was the lifestyle we were living. And whenever my father didn't do some of those instructions, like even without knowing, something tragic happened in our family. That means a child with no sickness would die in our home, in our family. So as a result of that tragedy, that brokenness, that powers of darkness, we lost 12 children from my father, from his three wives, four children each, 12 children perished because of our relationship with the spirit world. So it was a cursed family. And when I was born, I was not given a name until I was four years old because my parents did not expect me to grow up. All my siblings died and my parents were expecting me to die too. So I'm the second one among those who survived. And I have Three more from my mother who have survived, especially after we became believers, and then one sister from one of my dad's wives. So when 12 children died, and I was not given a name until I was four, because every name in Ethiopia has a meaning, my parents decided that why should we give a name, a meaning to a child who would die with no meaning? So when I reached age four, that is when my parents said, this is unusual. This child is growing up. Let's name him. And they named me Bekele. Bekele is Amharic word in Ethiopia means a seed is germinating. A seed is sprouting. There is life in this child. There is hope in this child. So I grew up. And when I was five, the witch doctor realized that this child was growing up. And he asked my father if that he must train me to follow my father's footsteps. And that means for me to grow up and serve the witch doctor as my father did. So I was in a sense commissioned to that practice and I was following my father wherever he went. And I was, as a sign of that commitment, I was smoking and drinking at age five. So it was completely dark and broken and hopeless and we were living under fear of death. Then gracious God, the creator of the universe, one day he intervened into our lives. When I was five, God decided to send two angels who visited my father during the night. My father was in his bed and my father describes what happened to him. So two angels came and sat down in front of him and they started telling him about God, that he is the creator who created everything, including the trees and the rocks and the mountains and every person and every living thing God created. And after explaining for several hours who God was to my father, the angels told him that we are taking you to heaven with us. You will visit heaven. We will take you to show what hell is like. So we don't know how that happened, but my father was taken to heaven and he walked in the streets of heaven when he tried to describe that his experience to us, he just gets emotional. And he says, the streets of heaven are so beautiful, so brilliant. And at the end of walking in the streets of heaven, he was taken to the gate of hell. And he would hear a loud scream from darkness, people calling out and saying, please, can you come and help us? So after his visit, 
one of the angels asked my father, I have shown you two places. Where do you want to be? And my father said, please send me to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. That's a terrible place. I like heaven. And then the angel who asked uh, my father that question, he smiled at him and he stretched out his hand. He shook my father's hand and he said, you have made good choice. I will send you two men who will come and tell you how you can get into heaven. You must listen to them. So that was a Wednesday at night. Two days later, two men from a different village who became believers about a week earlier, illiterate farmers who could not read or write, God appeared to them through angels and sent these two men to come and tell my father that the only way that he can get into heaven is if he believed in Jesus and denied the demons. So they came and they said, we have good news message to this family. The only way you can get into heaven is if you believe in Jesus. He is the son of God who came to die for your sins. He died on the cross and he overcame death. He rose again from the dead on the third day. And he's more powerful than the demons and the witch doctor and everything that people worship. So deny demons and believe in Jesus, then you will be able to go to heaven. So that night... My father was with my mom in our home. So my father, my mother, my older sister, myself, four of us, we became believers in Jesus. And we prayed short prayer. The prayer was, I believe in Jesus and I deny demons. That was it. And they told us that now you are Christians, you are believers in Jesus. So we became believers. And my father was afraid that something terrible might happen to him because he denied demons. But he had this confidence that he had visited heaven with the angels a few days earlier. So then two days later, that was now Sunday, another miracle happened to my father. My father had never been to school. We didn't have a school. He was illiterate, unable to read or write. And we raised a cattle and we had a small farm. So on Sunday, my father was walking with the cows. He was tending cows. He took the cows to drink water from the river and he was walking with the cows alongside the river. And all of a sudden, he finds the Holy Bible lying on the ground. And we don't know from where that Bible had come from. My dad picked up the book. He started opening through the pages. He didn't know what it was. He couldn't read. And then he started wondering, what is this? Who brought it here? As he was wondering about that, he hears a voice saying, this is my word. And then he said, who is speaking to me? Is there anyone around me? But there was no one. And then his wondering just increased. And then in his heart, he hears this voice saying, go and sit down under the shade of a tree. And my dad goes, sits under the shade of a tree. He opens the book and he prays this strange prayer. He says, God, was that your voice? Is this your book? I cannot see anything. Can you open my eyes and help me to read this book? If I'm able to read this book, I will teach this book my entire life. So right there, God opens my father's eyes to read the Bible. He comes home that afternoon and he asks the whole village to come to our place. So maybe around 400 people showed up because of my father's relationship with the witch doctor and because of his spirit power that he had. People did everything he asked. So the whole village turned up and my father stood up and he told them what happened to him in the last few days that angels appeared to him and he had visited heaven and he walked in the streets of heaven and he was taken to the gate of hell and he heard 
people crying out of darkness. And two men came and explained to him, he has now accepted Jesus. He's a believer in Christ. He denied demons. And now he was inviting the whole village to make that decision to deny demons and to accept Jesus. And that night, the whole village comes to Jesus and the light of the gospel shone on our entire community. And God used my father in amazing, amazing ways since that time. My father passed away after preaching the gospel faithfully for about nearly four decades, about 38, 37 years. The miracle was this. During his entire time that he was serving the Lord, 37, 38 years, the only book my dad could read was the Bible. I gave my father the Bible and another book with the same Haric scripts in Ethiopia. And my father could not show me a single word in any other book, but he could fluently read the Bible. And I asked dad, what's wrong with you? How can you read the Bible and you can't read any other book because the, the letters are the same? My father would say, whenever I open the holy book, it's like somebody is carrying a bright torch over my head and I could see everything. It's light. So heavenly light shines on the word of God, on the Bible, whenever my father opens that book and he preached the gospel. And he always carried that Bible with him. And after he became a believer, when he was walking in those villages, like five miles left or right, demon-possessed people would scream, saying, Holy Fire is passing by. That means my father must be around the, the area. And people would come out looking for him. He would go to that home. He would meet a demon-possessed person. He would put the Bible on the head of this person, and he would cast out demons immediately. And the whole family turns to Jesus. So that's my background. My ethnic group in South Central Ethiopia called Kambata Tribe, we are about 1.5 million people. And my friend did his doctoral research a few years ago. And according to his research, he discovered that about 97% of my ethnic group is born again believers, evangelical believers. So the whole community has been transformed. And we have not just a church in every village. In some villages, we have two, three, four churches. So we hear singing everywhere in that community and worship to the Lord. So that is my background. I've experienced the power of God. The gospel has transformed me. And that's why I'm passionate about reaching people who are lost without Christ and sharing the good news that has power to transform lives. Wow, that is a pretty incredible story. I don't know that we've heard anything quite that amazing. So one of the things that comes to mind is we have heard, I think, enough stories on this podcast to have heard about demons being cast out, about animism and some of those kind of ideas. I don't think that we've spoken to anybody yet who has had such direct exposure and life experience with a lot of those things. And I don't want to get too sidetracked, but just because people have not experienced a lot of those things in the West, people, I think, have difficulty wrapping their heads around that. And I'm sure that you have had people ask about that. I'm curious how you respond to that very different approach Satan has taken with the West? Yeah, it's a common question. I get asked this question. Demons manifest themselves in different ways. Sometimes I joke about it and say, maybe demons in Africa, in Asia, in some parts of Latin America are 
maybe uncivilized demons that can easily manifest themselves. But in the West, they are complicated demons that use the minds of people through education and media and philosophy and our intellectual advancement and things like that. And usually God performs miracles in places where he is not known or the evil is confronting people from knowing God, like in the Gospels and in the New Testament, in the Acts. Why did we see so many miracles happen? Because God wanted to prove to the listeners, to hearers, to the recipients of the gospel that he is the mighty God. He is the only God. He is the true God. And there are many counterfeits. There are many who claim to be gods or try to take the place of God. So God uses miracles to prove himself to people that he is the only true God and he is worthy of worship. But in places where people have a sense of knowing God, they are not struggling to believe in God, whether the belief is genuine or not. They don't struggle to believe in God. It's like Jesus said, like you worship God, but you don't know his power. So God wants to show who he is. And also, in places where there is persecution and there are so many challenges, people experience more miracles from God. God is showing this is who I am and I'm true God. But when there are no persecutions, it's easy to be Christian. You may not see God displaying power because it is easy to believe. There is nothing too hard like for people to see who the true God is. So it's a complex thing. It's the way where we are in terms of our technological advancements, persecution, culture, the worldviews that we have. So there are so many factors why it is different in the West. Yeah, I just find that so interesting. A follow-up question. I'd be curious to know at what point you came to the U.S. because I know that you're based out of the U.S. now. And along with that, how have you noticed how the church looks different in the U.S. or in the West versus where it looks like, not just in Ethiopia, but in many parts of the world? You know, I'm sure you have experience in many regions now. And so how does the church itself, the global church, look different elsewhere in the world? Yes, I came to the U.S. about 11 years ago. We moved with my family in 2011. My experience is both in Africa and in the U.S. and other parts of the world. So God used the West to take the gospel to the rest of the world. And God used significantly the church in North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand to send the missionaries to fund scripture translation, printing distribution, and even to help with community development, education, and things like that. So the role of the Western Church in fulfilling the Great Commission and advancing the gospel, the kingdom of God, is huge. But what has happened is now many missiologists believe that the center of Christianity has shifted from what missiologists call global north, which is the Western Church, to the global south, which is Africa, Asia, and Latin America. 
So the fruit of the missionaries have grown, multiplied, blossomed. The Holy Spirit has been working in mighty ways. So the church has seen amazing growth in the global south. But it was not easy for me to grow up in Ethiopia. Ethiopia was a communist country. When I was six years old, Ethiopia became a communist country, and it became illegal for a person to be an evangelical Christian, and for that matter, to be a Christian. And we were not allowed to own the Bible. And most churches were, especially evangelical churches, were shut down, and many leaders were being persecuted. Many were put in jail. Many were killed. But at that time, what happened was the church went underground, and every Christian home almost became a place of worship. So the church went into underground, and the church focused on evangelistic small group Bible studies where we invited friends and relatives and family members to come and join our small group underground evangelistic Bible studies. And every Bible study was designed to share the good news and make disciples. And the church also focused on identifying faithful people who were leading those small groups and making contributions. And those people were quickly identified and trained as leaders. So multiplication of small groups. Then we would pray overnight, like at least once a week. At least once a week, we experienced overnight prayers. Overnight prayers means the whole night. We would pray for the whole night. And the experience was so amazing. Like when people were teaching the Word of God, we would listen the Word of God for hours. And we were so hungry for the Word of God. And we would kneel for three, four hours and pray. And when we prayed the whole night, like nine, ten hours from eight to six, it was like we hadn't even prayed for an hour. We were so hungry for the spiritual things. And the Holy Spirit was working in powerful ways. And the police were following us and people were being arrested. So we would go to that overnight prayer place through different directions. We were given instructions and we had codes that we were using. And the Christians who hosted those overnight prayers, they created multiple windows in their homes. And we were given instructions that you arrive at 8.15 and use window 6 to come in and wait until it is dark. If you see a police after you, just go back. Don't come to this place. So we were given those specific instructions. And as we were praying, the Holy Spirit would speak and we would have immediate prophecies, God saying, don't leave this place until it is this time. Or when you leave this place, don't use this street. So it was like a specific instruction. And the prayer, the spiritual hunger for the word of God, the love we had for one another, is the gospel. It's the book of Acts. The number of people who were getting saved in that difficult moment when the communists took over Ethiopia in 1974, European calendar, we had less than 200,000 evangelical believers in the whole country, less than 200,000. 17 years later, when the communists collapsed and the church became above the ground, we had grown from less than 200,000 to about 8 million. And we didn't have denominational barriers. We loved each other. You are my brother and the sister as long as you believe in Jesus. So that was the experience. And when we moved to the U.S., 
Yes, we still have many people, many believers, many churches with zeal for, for prayer, with zeal for evangelism, for discipleship. But there is that sense of lukewarmness in the church, mm-hmm. spiritual apathy there. It's like we have many Christians, but we don't have many committed disciples. I could say that boldly. And there is this like, this is my denomination or this is my congregation and this is mine. So this sense of boundaries, this sense of it belongs to me and I know everything about my church. I can do everything. So there is this less collaboration and not intentional reaching out to others like you are my brother, you are my sister, we are one in Christ, we love one another. And I don't see like this passion for prayer, you know. I don't know what is the average time an average American Christian prays. I tried to introduce overnight prayers here in Orlando. It was a nightmare for many people. (laughs) And we tried to go up to midnight We did that, but it was hard for many people. So those are some differences, the passion to pray, the commitment to pray, and being a disciple of Jesus, and also commitment to pay the price for the truth of the gospel. So those are some of the differences I'm observing. I'm not saying that the church in Africa is better than the church in the U.S. No, the church is one. It's one big church, but the experiences are different, and in some places, we are so passionate, and in some places we are not. So, but Kelly, these experiences that you had growing up, incredibly powerful experiences, how did those all come together to influence the path that you took as you grew older? Okay, so growing up in my village, as soon as we became believers, missionaries from faraway places heard that something new was happening in our community, so they came and visited us and they introduced education. So I went to school. I was educated by the grace of God. When I was 12, I was already reading the Bible, standing up in the church and trying to explain what the scripture was saying at age 12. I don't know what how I interpreted the scripture, but at age 12, I was preaching in the church, assisting my father. I had the opportunity to be educated. So I went to college in Ethiopia at age 16. I graduated at age 19. I was one of the best students. I was recruited by the Ethiopian government after my graduation, and I worked for the Ethiopian government with the Ministry of Health. I was given a very high position in the government, involved in research in disease distribution. I was working with World Health Organization and Centers for Disease Control here in Atlanta in partnership. I worked there for about five years, and after five years, the Lord called me. The Lord said, I have a different plan for your life. I want you to give your whole life to serve my purpose. So it was a long struggle, but finally the Lord helped me and I said yes. And we got married with my wife and we joined Campus Crusade for Christ Ministry in Ethiopia. So after completing the new staff training, which was for almost a year in another country, we returned to Ethiopia. I was 25 or 26. And my immediate assignment, as soon as I completed the new staff training, was to lead the National Ministry of Campus Crusade in Ethiopia. So I became a national director, my first assignment. And I had this faith in God that I can ask God for anything, as long as it is in His plan, in His will, as long as it is what He has commanded us. And God would do for His glory, because He wants those things to be done. So... 
At age 25, 26, I asked God, what do you want me to do for you? And God just uh, opened my eyes to trust him for the impossible, for what we call the impossible. Because the Bible says, whatever is impossible to us is possible with God. So I came up with a plan. The plan was to reach the whole country of about 50 million people in 10 years. We had only less than 10 Campus Crusade staff, and I wanted to have about 300 staff. And I wanted to translate the Jesus film in every major language in the country so that people could hear the gospel in a language they would understand and plant the church in every village, mobilize the whole body of Christ for the Great Commission, and raise up leaders and even begin sending missionaries outside Ethiopia and raise as much money as we could, give at least one chance for every person to personally know Jesus Christ and buy 100 cars and two helicopters so that we could fly into every village and present Christ and plant in a, a church and the disciple people. So that was my initial plan at age 25, 26. And what I did was I invited all the top church leaders and I said, this is what God is going to do in our country. And I'm believing this and I would like us to work together. So people didn't take me seriously. <laughs> I was a very like a teen, a young man, and people started asking one another, have you ever seen this young man? Does he know what he's talking about? But we saw amazing things. I led the ministry in Ethiopia for five years. And in five years, we reached more than 20 million people with the gospel. And our staff population grew from seven to 127 in five years. It was amazing. We even started the process of buying a helicopter from Switzerland to bring to Ethiopia. And finally, the government refused the license because they said, you are evangelistic ministry and we will not give you permission to fly a helicopter. But what happened was that there was another mission organization from Switzerland that had an office in Ethiopia. And they knew that I was negotiating to buy this helicopter to bring to Ethiopia they were allowed to bring because they were humanitarian development agency, Christian mission organization, and they were given permission. They brought the same helicopter. The leaders came to my office and they said, we knew that you wanted to buy this helicopter. Now it is here in the country and your staff can use it. You know, the Lord has taught me that whatever you ask God to do for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom, he is able and faithful to do it. But sometimes we limit what God could do because we are not believing. We are not believing and we are not asking God for great things. I always encourage people to ask God for something bigger than themselves, for something that they cannot do by themselves. You know, if I develop a plan that I can do by the resources I have and by the team I have, by my capacity... I will not need God and God will not be glorified. But when I develop a plan that I cannot do by everything that I have, then God shows up because he wants his glory. And finally, I would be able to say, God, thank you for doing all this. And that's what God wants. So I led the Ethiopian ministry for five years. And then I was appointed to lead Campus Crusade Ministries for 23 countries in the Southern and Eastern Africa region. So I became a, a regional leader in Africa and my family and I moved to Zimbabwe for 23 countries. One highlight during that time was the Lord put in my heart a vision to reach 50 major cities in those 23 countries, stretching from South Africa to Ethiopia, Eritrea, including Indian Ocean Islands, to reach 50 million people 
in 50 major cities in 50 days at the same time. So when I wrote the vision down, I had everything clearly outlined through the Holy Spirit. But I shared the vision with my team and we started preparing. And we prepared for two years. And after two years, we launched the campaign in 50 cities at the same time to reach 50 million people with the gospel. We had trained half a million Christians from 20,000 congregations. The body of Christ came together, and it was amazing. God gave us so many creative ways of sharing Christ and making disciples. And I set up about 2,000 task forces with over 10,000 leaders from churches, from denominations, professional background, business communities, Christian organizations, media, government, 2,000 task forces led by 10,000 leaders, half a million Christians trained, about 103 different ways of sharing Christ and making disciples, some crazy creative ways of doing ministry. We documented 103 strategies. We showed the Jesus film over 8,000 times. It was massive. It was massive. After the campaign, after the 50 days when we documented reports from those 50 cities, we did not only reach 50 million people with the gospel, we had exceeded. We reached 64.5 million people. How did we reach that number? More than our goal? Because there were cities next to those cities that we had selected. They heard about this vision and they came to us and they said, why didn't you include us? We also want to do this. So they took the vision and they mobilized by themselves. They mobilized churches and they did that. So 64.5 million people were reached with the gospel, and we had documented 1 million, about 1,720,000 decisions for Jesus. What we have learned through that process was, again, believing God for the impossible. And when there is clear vision, people are attracted to that vision. Resources come when we have clear vision and conviction and passion to do something for the Lord, resources will come. Sometimes people just wait for the resources to come, for them to do something. God works in a different way. It's the other way around. When you have a vision and when you step out by faith to do something for the glory of God, He shows up. He brings the resources. He brings the people. People will listen to you. People will obey you. And there is also power in unity, power in partnership. We have seen what God had done when his body came together to reach people with the message of the good news and then distributing power and authority. So the reason I had set up 2000 task forces was we broke down that huge vision into manageable pieces. That is how Nehemiah rebuilt the broken walls in 52 days. Every family, every clan, every group rebuilding the broken walls adjacent to one another or in front of their homes. Every contribution matters in the kingdom of God. So creating that environment for people to bring their gifts and talents and to make contribution to building God's kingdom and people have been given, they are empowered, they have been given authority to make decisions. They are not controlled. No one is controlling them. What I did was when we set up those task forces, I gave them a template. I said, your role as a task force For example, just one task force, say in Cape Town, South Africa, if we had a student task force, we brought all churches and Christian organizations that had ministry to students. So they became one task force. And their task was, one, train every Christian student in the city of Cape Town. That's your plan. Number two, reach 
develop a plan and implement to reach every student with the gospel, every student who didn't know Jesus with the gospel. Third, disciple every student who makes a decision to accept Jesus. Four, raise the funds you need for your task force. So clear responsibility for every task force. They have been empowered. There is even a sense of competition, like who will do the best job and things like that. It was amazing. Those were some of the things that we have learned through that. So I led that region, the Southern and Eastern Africa, for about 10, 11 years. And in 2011, I was challenged to consider moving to the U.S. with my family. And the reason was God was leading Campus Crusade for Christ or crew ministry to consider starting church planting division. And as many know, even as our name indicates, our organization's primary focus is student ministry. That's how we started. That is where our greatest strength is. And we were not doing church planting. But God was moving in powerful ways in the area of church planting around the world. And we were also practicing church planting, like using intentionally using every Jesus film show to plant churches, to partner with local pastors, and to show the Jesus film in a location that didn't have a church. So we were practicing that. So I received a call back in 2010 from Cruz President Dr. Steve Douglas, who called me while I was in South Africa with my family. And he said, God is guiding us as an organization to start a church planting division and we are inviting you to consider accepting that challenge. So my wife and I prayed about it. We sensed God was leading us, and we said yes. So my wife and I were the first two official staff of crew in the church planting division. Now God has blessed us. So since 2010, I've been involved in leading the church planting division of crew. Right now, we have church planting of crew in 152 countries, and we have over 2,500 full-time staff leading church planting movements. And we have seen amazing, amazing development of church planting movements. We focus on multiplication of disciples and leaders and churches. Churches that are planted must plant churches. We want every church to become a great grandmother church, like giving birth to a new church. And that church goes on to give birth to a new church. So we say, at least four generations of multiplication. And we have seen that multiplication already in about 117 countries around the world. Some of the largest generations of church multiplication is we have reached 27 generations of church multiplication in a country of Tanzania, in Ethiopia, 21 generations, in another undisclosed country, 18 generations. So we are seeing amazing multiplication. So in 2011, you know, when I started just one page back, when I facilitated the starting of church planting division in Crew, the Lord gave us a very clear vision. The very clear vision was at that time we had about 7 billion people around the world. And from those 7 billion people, about 2 billion people self-identified themselves as Christians. That left the entire 5 billion people who didn't identify themselves with Christ or Christianity or Christian faith. So I told my team, we have two major responsibilities. One is, how can we help the two billion self-identified Christians to be part of God's mission? How can they be engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission? How can they truly follow Jesus? How can they fully understand and obey the Word of God? How can we mobilize the resources that God has entrusted to the two billion self-identified Christians to fulfill the Great Commission? That was the first 
responsibility. The second responsibility is how can we engage with conviction and passion the 5 billion people who didn't know Christ? How would we know that if we have effectively engaged the 5 billion people with the gospel, how can we measure that? So I was facilitating the planning meeting in South Africa to my small team, and that is when the Holy Spirit, I spoke to my heart, and I wrote on a flip chart saying one for 1,000. So if the body of Christ is working together and engaging people who have not heard about Jesus or who have not said yes, who have not experienced the love and grace that I have personally experienced, if we could establish a healthy church, a church that is obeying the great commandment and fulfilling the great commission, a church that is raising up disciples and engaging other communities through multiplication, a church that is making kingdom impact, that representing the kingdom of God in every rural village, every suburban neighborhood, every urban high rise, every digital space, wherever people are, if we could establish a church, a multiplying healthy church for every 1,000 people. So that meant primarily among the 5 billion. So the Lord led us to say, okay, that means additional 5 million churches, but evenly distributed, fairly distributed around the world. In some places you find concentration of churches and in other places you don't find anything, but fairly distributed churches. So a church for every 1,000 people became our vision. And in 2011, the Lord put in my heart to begin connecting with leaders of like-minded organizations and churches that were involved in church planting and seek to develop partnership because the vision was for the whole body of Christ, not just for Campus Crusade. So I started building relationships with my team, meeting mission CEOs and getting to know them, what the Lord is doing in and through them, and then also sharing this vision of uh, can we engage the 5 billion people with the gospel? Can we help plant a healthy church for every 1,000 people all over the world? So through that engagement in 2011, we started GSCX, Global Alliance for Church Multiplication. Five ministries came together. We agreed to learn from each other, become a learning community, support one another, love one another, share what we are learning, and strategically also collaborate, identify common priorities, common challenges, solve them, and go and work in common priority location and share resources generously and work with one another humbly. So we agreed and we started partnering with each other. We took uh, countries and we went to work together just to experience, to learn. How can we collaborate? How can we make the body of Christ more effective in fulfilling the mission? And we also agreed that we all have relationships and let's use our relationships to invite like-minded leaders to be part of this movement. So as a result, now, since 2011, we started with five ministries. Now we have grown into about 115 global ministries working together in GSEX. And every year we also report how many churches we have planted. We inspire one another. Like if you have a goal of planting 100 churches as an organization this year, partners will come to you and they will say, what do you need? How, how can you double your goal? How can you plant 200 instead of 100? How can you plant 400? What resources do you need? What help do you need? So that is what we do in GSEX. We inspire one another's vision and goals, and we strengthen one another's strategies and tools. And we also try to match needs and resources because you need Maybe it's my resource. I have the resource that can meet your need. Or maybe you have resources that can meet my need. Why should I 
reinvent the wheel. If there is something already exists in the kingdom, in the body of Christ, let's bring all those and match those needs and resources. So as a result of working together in the last 11 years since we started, we have reported a cumulative 2.44 million churches and groups started through our collaborative efforts through GSEX, and I praise God for that. We may not be accurate in our reports. Yes, we have flaws, we have problems, but even with that, what God is doing is so amazing. We sharpen one another, we learn from each other, we love one another, we collaborate, and we all believe that there is one church and one body and one kingdom and one king. That is what we live for. That's what we do. So my background, my upbringing has clearly shaped me to believe God for the impossible, to believe that there is only one church. That is the bride of Jesus. And I have to love every church. I have to serve every church. No church is better than any other church because every church is just a member of a big body. There is one body. So sometimes some people think that their church is the only body of Christ which is a lack of proper understanding. No, every church, whether you are a denomination or a church congregation or a huge mission organization, you are not by yourself a body. You are just a small member in the bigger body of Christ. So my upbringing has helped me to understand, to have this perspective and to seek to serve the whole church, the whole body of Christ and to help facilitate intentional and strategic collaboration in the body of Christ, and to share resources generously to others and to love people who are serving Jesus, like myself. That's the great commandment that Jesus commanded us. So this is my journey, and this is how my upbringing has shaped me. Wow, that is just such an incredible vision. And I think one of the radiating themes from everything that you said is that expecting God to move and expecting things so big that there is no explanation, but to give the glory back to God, that there is just absolutely no way that human hands could accomplish the things that you have seen. So as you are describing GACX and this incredible collaboration in the church planting space, one question that I have that comes to mind is, how do you know where the church is currently and where there is a lack of church presence? How do you ensure that that even distribution is happening? And what does the rest of the task look like? How far are we today? And what is the rest of planting a church for every thousand people? What does that look like? And what's the time frame on that? Yeah, thanks so much for that question. The way we know where the missional gap is, where the task is, where the need is, there are different ways of us knowing that. One is we have national leaders. So we are not just working from the global position or perspective. We have national leaders. We work with church denominations at the national level, mission organizations at the national level, local churches. So We gather information from those national churches. They know where they are and they know where they are not. That is one way. Another way is we have initiated mapping and measuring. When we started, when I started the global church movement, the church planting division of crew back in 2010, one of the things that we immediately needed was how can we measure, how can we map out every village, every neighborhood? 
so that we know where the church is and where the church is not. And that information would inform our strategic resource allocation as well, our prioritization. So we developed what we call iShare. iShare is a mapping and measurement tool that we can put information. We can go to any village. We can put information whether in that village we have a believer or no, we have a church or no, and then we can pull out those maps and bring churches together in a given country and show that map and challenge those churches and mission organizations. See, here are the greatest needs, and we need to go to those places. We need to collaborate in those places. So that has the mapping and measurement has now grown, and we have now even a sister organization that is called Coalition of the Willing. That is data gathering measurement evaluation organizations have come together. I think we have now maybe about 10 to 12 organizations who have agreed to share their data and then to go to every country and map out every village and the neighborhood. We are fully testing in one country now. I heard today that in that country, 97% of every village and neighborhood has been mapped out. So we learn from that and we will go to country by country to mobilize teams to do this mapping, complete mapping of the world. So that is how we are trying to know where the priorities are. We have also looked at country by country. And right now, I would like to say that we have identified 24 countries in the world. In those 24 countries, we have 4.3 billion people who do not know Jesus. And those 24 countries are the greatest priorities at the moment without neglecting those who are outside those 24 countries. That is where we are inspiring and challenging organizations and churches, sending agencies to consider engaging those places and those peoples in those 24 countries with evangelism and church planting. So we know where the gaps are. We know where the priorities are, but our hearts should also be after those priorities and our resources should also be after those priorities because the vision that uh, the Lord has given us is not just to go to some of the easiest places and neglect some of the hardest soil, but to trust God, mobilize prayers, and go to those hardest places. And God is bringing different partnerships into the picture. And at the moment, we have amazing global prayer mobilization efforts going on. So we have several prayer movements that have come together. So they have taken these 24 priority countries. They have identified 110 major cities in those 24 countries. And they are already mobilizing prayers in 110 cities, asking God to move in powerful ways, to open doors in those places, and to convict people for their need of Jesus and salvation, and asking God to intervene in those places. So we can't do this, but God can. So pieces are coming together. We have priorities. We know where we are. But wherever we needed detailed information, we are working on creating those maps of specific districts, countries, regions of the world. So you mentioned a couple numbers that really stuck out to me. You said that in a relatively short amount of time that 2.44 million churches were planted and the vision was for 5 million. So that's almost halfway there. And 
I'm curious if the multiplication of churches means that the progress is accelerating and it will be even fewer years to complete that vision, or if the difficulty of reaching the remaining countries is presenting a barrier and it may actually take more time. Do you have a sense for which may be the case? Yeah, the number of years is 11, 12. Yeah, we started cruise church planning in 2010, that's 12 years, and the GSX in 2011, that's 11 years. But it's actually 12 years because we agreed to report our church planting data from 2010. Yes, in terms of numbers, it's about 45, 46% of the goal that we have seen, but there are factors which is a huge progress. And in fact, this is just one network. There are so many networks. There are so many churches and mission organizations that are doing similar things. So, yes, we have seen over 45% of our goal achieved. But the challenges are, one, I could still say that many of those churches have been planted in some of the easiest locations around the world, some of the fertile ground, maybe in places where we have significant Christian population. Number two, our reporting could be faulty. I can't say it's a perfect report because there could be double counting, especially in places where we have like collaboration. We have observed some practices that in some places, if two organizations have planted a church, we received a report of that church from two different places, and we are working on improving those. That's why the mapping and measuring would be significant help in that, because on the computer, if you have planted a church, we will see on the map the location, who started the church, what is the name of the church planter, on which day the church started, how many people came to the church the first time, and then we have updates regular updates on that church to measure how that church is growing, whether that church is multiplying. So that would solve those reporting challenges. And yes, we are also now working with finishing the task. I'm part of finishing the task movement as well. I have this privilege that I've been asked to help the effort of planting a church in every village, in every place. So under finishing the task, we have what we call 4B, letter Bs. One is breakthrough prayer, that we are mobilizing effective strategic prayer to see the Great Commission accelerated. And the second B is we want to see believers in every place. That means we need to engage every place, every people with the gospel. So seeing a believer in every people. The third B is Bible in every language. And the other B is the one I'm leading, bodies of Christ in every place. So the four components working together, and we are targeting a year 2033. A year 2033 is the 2000th anniversary of the giving of the Great Commission. If Jesus gave the Great Commission in 33 AD, 2033 would be the 2000th anniversary of the Great Commission. So we are aiming for that day to see scripture translated in every major language and healthy church planted in every place. That is a church for every 1,000 people. 
and every people group engaged with the gospel, Jesus has given us this final picture that people from every tribe, tongue, people, and the nation will gather around the throne. That is Jesus' final picture. And he has commissioned us, he has called us to make this happen. In partnership with the Holy Spirit, God has entrusted to us this amazing work of fulfilling the Great Commission. So that is uh, the vision of the finishing the task, which is to inspire, to mobilize, to connect, to galvanize, to resource the body of Christ, to accelerate the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and to reach these targets by 2033. So then the mapping and the measuring of every village and neighborhood will also be part of this to tell us where we are and where we are not. It's hard to wrap your head around some of this progress that's been made and the relatively short timeline that we've now heard a number of times, similar kind of timelines on what the rest of the job might take. I mean, that's easily in the lifetime of most people listening to this podcast. And it seems like things are only accelerating from here. So I'm very curious to see what happens in the next five to 10 years. One thing that I noticed about GACX is among the partner organizations, there are implementer organizations and accelerator organizations. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference between the two and how different organizations plug in in that way. Yes, because in a body, we have different parts and different parts play different roles. So in the church is also like that. The church is the body of Christ and there are different members that have different gifts, different talents, different calling, but every contribution counts. That is our conviction. So in GSX, we have two categories of members. We call them implementers and accelerators. Implementers are those organizations and churches whose primary role is to plant and multiply churches because the GSX's goal is to see a healthy church planted for every 1,000 people. And church planting organizations are the ones implementing that vision. So that's why we call them implementers. The other category, we call them accelerators. The accelerators, they are not necessarily planting churches. Some may do, but that is not their primary thing, primary calling. They come alongside church planting organizations and churches and accelerate the planting of the churches. How do they accelerate? Some come with leadership development programs. Some come with discipleship making programs. Some come with prayer mobilization efforts. Some come with humanitarian development activities. Some create tools like the Jesus Film, create and provide tools for church planters to use. All this, when they come and partner with church planting organizations, they are accelerating. Instead of like one Christian humanitarian organization just going and digging water wells in communities that desperately need water, if this organization partners with a church planting organization, the body of Christ will not only provide temporary water to that community, we will also provide a living water by sharing Christ and planting a church. That is what partnership can do. Resources are maximized. So the company that digs water wells, 
They may not do evangelism and church planting, but they're opening doors. They are building credibility for the church or for the church planting organization to go and use that platform, that connection to plant the church in that place. So we have an organization, for example, that builds a children playground, a GSX member. Wherever they go and build a children playground in a community, a church can also be planted. If there is a sports organization that is equipping young people with soccer balls and kids, sports kits, and training them, church planning organization can partner with them. So these are organizations that are accelerating. So they are strengthening, giving access, building leaders, creating and providing tools, Bibles, whatever is necessary for the church planter to use and to have access to those communities with evangelism and church planting. So they come together and say, I have this. I can bring this for the glory of God. Let's use these resources. Let's go and work together. Some of them, they may not be like in front. They can be at the background, but they are accelerating the advancement of God's kingdom by establishing permanent presence of the kingdom of God by planting multiplying churches in those communities. So that is the difference. But Kelly, what are you most excited about as we look forward the next 10 years or so and work towards the realization of those four Bs? What I'm most excited about is one, you know, about 20, 30 years ago, we didn't experience what we're experiencing now, which is partnerships. Even when we started GSX in 2011, the first few years, when organizations came to attend GSX forums, some leaders asked, why am I here? What can I get? What can I benefit from being a member of GSX? That language has changed. Now, almost everybody, and I pray that everybody should say that, we are saying, I'm here to help accelerate the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I'm here to give everything that the Lord has entrusted to me and to my organization. I'm here not for myself, not for my organization. I'm here for Jesus. How can I help you? And how can we work together for the glory of God? So God's glory is at the center. Fulfilling the Great Commission is our motivation. One kingdom, one body is our philosophy, is our belief, is our conviction. So The Holy Spirit is just building this partnership in the body of Christ. This is unheard of. Why? Jesus said this gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Jesus said it. He did not say it may be preached or it could be. No, he said it will be preached. How? When his body comes together, we love one another, we are united We believe in one kingdom, one king. We are generously sharing the resources, the strategies, the tools as he has given us. And we are working together. Our focus is fulfilling the Great Commission. The Holy Spirit is doing that. And I also believe in my heart that we are closer to the end times than yesterday or last year. You know, every day brings us closer to that end that Jesus told us in Matthew 24. So what I'm most excited about, I'm most excited about what the Holy Spirit is doing, the vision of Jesus, that people will be saved and their sins will be washed away by the blood of the Lamb from every tribe, language, people, and the nation. That is true. I 
completely believe in that. Jesus is building his church. He has called us to be part of that amazing enterprise of building the eternal kingdom of God and the collaboration and what God is doing and the amazing leaders he has raised up at the national level. I have a privilege of working with so many national leaders who are very, very committed to seeing the fulfillment of the Great Commission in their own nations. So these are the things that I'm very passionate about, and I want to see what the Lord will do in the next 10, 12 years as we move toward the 23 targets that we have set as a body of Christ. But Kelly, earlier on, you were talking about the intense faith of the church in Ethiopia that you experienced and elsewhere in the world. And we were talking about how things look different here in the U.S. I think that a lot of our listeners are probably very passionate about many of the things that you're talking about. But one question I have for you is, how do we spread that passion to our neighbors, to our own local churches and our own fellow Christians here in the U.S.? How do we mobilize, like you said, the church that has in many ways become lukewarm or content or quiet or however you want to say it? How do we get the rest of our brothers and sisters here in the West on board with everything that you are sharing? And I know that this is not just your story alone. We have heard this now from many people, from many organizations. Clearly, God is getting ready for some truly amazing works that we are going to witness in the next decade or so. But how do we share that message with the brothers and sisters around us? Yeah, I'll share a few things. One is the experiences that we have. I have personally in Ethiopia, the passion, the conviction for the Lord and for his kingdom and for his church, for the Great Commission can only happen if we are praying. So I encourage believers in the U.S., and for that matter, in the global north, in the Western church, to start praying. You know, sometimes we say, let's come together and pray. My experience has been that if we have come together for one hour to pray, sometimes we just share prayer requests for 55 minutes and we have only five minutes left for prayer. That's not prayer. Prayer is just pray. Just pray as the Holy Spirit enables you. Pray together. Pray in small groups. So prayer is so powerful. When we pray, we are aligned with God's heart. We are asking God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And when we prayed in Ethiopia, we had like a big notebooks where we wrote the date and the prayer that we prayed. And we waited for God to answer those prayers. And we wrote the date and how God answered that prayer. So that is a, a prayer discipline. And I encourage people, write down what you are praying and see if your God answers those prayers. And our God is a living God who hears and who answers. Test him out. Write down your prayers. Buy big notebooks. Even don't type on iPad or cell phone. Get big notebooks and write them down and wait until the Lord answers those prayers. So pray. Number two, Bring people back to the Bible, to the basics. Let's study the Word of God together. Let's have simple faith to obey the Word of God. You know, when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, 
he didn't say teach them to know the word of God. Sometimes we know, we know too much about the word of God, but what lacks sometimes is the obedience. It's a simple faith. I have so many stories to tell, but when growing up in Ethiopia in that rural village, people, new believers, they just believed everything the Bible said. So one day, We had a visiting preacher from somewhere else who came and who preached about the ship and the goats from Matthew 25. And he said that the ship will inherit the kingdom of God and the goats will not. So that day, they didn't fully understand what the Bible was telling. So our parents came back from the church and they decided to kill all the goats because they said that, why are we keeping goats? They don't inherit the kingdom of God. You know, that is just a simple faith, simple obedience. The day they heard about tithing, giving 10% to God, that day everything changed. So Christian families, they invited church elders to come to their place and they said, count my cows. If I have 10, choose one. One belongs to God. And the elders came and they painted one cow out of 10. They said, this cow belongs to God. That is how they practiced obedience. So study the word of God together and practice, obey. Then we will see how the Holy Spirit builds this passion, this conviction. And then another thing is be open to learn from those who are in the global south. Spend time with people from those places And go and see what God is doing in those places. When you see, just observe and listen and learn. So it's time also to learn. As I mentioned earlier, the West has blessed the rest of the world. Now the West should receive blessings from the rest of the world. What is God doing? Please tell me. And take short-term mission teams. And when you take the short-term mission teams to some of those countries, it should be intentionally to expose them to cast vision. It's a vision casting trip for them rather than going and sharing the gospel with Africans or Asians. It's good to go and share the gospel with Africans and Asians, but also expose your young people to what God is doing in Africa, Asia. So lead vision trips and learn. So humility, learning, and praying for God to do the same and even more in our churches here in the U.S., Canada, and the global north is, I think, what I believe is important. I understand you wrote a book recently. Could you tell us a little bit about Never Alone? Yes, thank you. I recently wrote a book called Never Alone, From Ethiopian Villager to Global Leader. And the book has most of the things that I have shared in this podcast Many people were asking me, whenever they heard about my story, they said, please, could you write your story down so that we could have a book? So I prayed about it. And past three years ago, I started writing God's stories in my life. And Never Alone, the title of the book focuses on the power, principles, and practices of partnership. Why we need to partner in the body of Christ. Uh, why partnership is so effective? How can we practice it? What are the principles that guide effective partnerships? So Never Alone is about partnerships. I'm not alone. I share stories that even I'm alive today in this world. You know, I came to this world because of partnership. My father and mother partnered to bring me to this world. So it starts right there. And I share about my salvation story in the book. And for my salvation, there are so many who partnered. The heavens and the earth partnered. The angels, 
the Holy Spirit and God and those two illiterate farmers who came from a different village to tell my father about Jesus and the people who funded the translation of the Bible and then the printing of that Bible. I don't know how the Bible ended up in my village. It must have been transported. So there are people who funded the translation, the printing, the distribution. And there were even people who were praying for unreached, unengaged people groups to hear the gospel. And we were unengaged, unreached people group. And God heard the prayers of saints from elsewhere who were interceding for God to do something miraculous in my village. And God answered their prayers. So there were so many visible and invisible people who partnered in my salvation. When I understand that even my salvation is possible because of partnership, I have to practice partnership. So my book, Never Alone, is about partnership. And then the subtitle, From Ethiopian Villager to Global Leader, is how God raised me up from that broken background, from that impoverished small village in South Central Ethiopia, and the journey that he has given me because of his grace and mercy, and now where I am today involved in leading his mission globally. So it narrates about my life journey, but from the perspective of practicing partnerships. That's my book. Well, but Kelly, as we are getting to the end of the episode here, I did want to leave a minute for our manager's minute. You know, as we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with a practical action our listeners can take to do just that. So do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel, and build God's kingdom? Yes. I just want to share one verse that has significantly impacted my life. When I was a young man, I heard somebody reading this verse from the book of Acts chapter 13, verse 36. It was a verse that Apostle Paul spoke about King David in relation to Jesus' resurrection. And Paul said, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. And this verse gave me direction to my life. So from this verse, I have three pillars that shape and continue to shape my life. One is David served God's purpose. There are so many purposes that a person can serve in his life. But there is only one purpose that lasts forever, that is serving the purpose of God. The second thing is that David served in his generation, not in his fathers, not in his sons. He had one generation to serve God's purpose. And I'm alive today to serve God's purpose, and this is my generation. The third pillar is David fell asleep. That means every person has a limit. In terms of how many years we can live here on earth, there is a limit. There is a day that will not be here on earth, but this is our time and God has called us to serve his purpose. So wherever you do, whatever you do, I encourage you to consider this verse. This is your generation. God is calling you to serve his purpose and you have limited time. This is a reality. I'm not trying to be harsh, but this is a reality. So let's serve God's purpose in our generation. If the Lord has blessed you with resources, give generously as God has given to us generously. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So God is a generous God. He's a giver God. So let's give, let's pray, let's encourage church planters around the world. Let's increase our commitment to see the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And the Lord bless you. And Jesus has promised that when we give, we are keeping our treasures in heaven and we will find those treasures in heaven. And people will run to us saying, Thank you for helping me to come out of darkness to this everlasting light. And what a wonderful moment that would be to see many people running 
toward me and toward you and thanking and Jesus is smiling when he sees us because of the faithfulness that we have demonstrated while it is our generation. Amen to that. But Kelly, where can people learn more about Crew and about GACX? Yeah, people can learn about GACX. It's gacx.io. And you can also learn about Crew, crew crew.org. And we also have globalchurchmovements.org. That is the church planting division of Crew. So those are different areas that have been involved. And FTT also finishing the task. So I'm involved in so many areas. And yeah, you will find us in those places. Awesome. And I encourage everybody to check those out. A lot of good content there. But Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I mean, your story is just truly incredible. And this was a real blessing to see how God has worked through your life all the way from how he brought your family to Christ to what you are doing in the world today and and what he has invited you into. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for giving me this opportunity to share what God has done in and through my life. And I pray that this testimony will encourage someone somewhere. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 51. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.